From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Wednesday, November 14th. I'm Marco Werman. Israel launches airstrikes against targets in Gaza. The goal of the operation is to defend Israeli people. Among those killed is a top Hamas military commander. Now there's concern about escalating violence between Israelis and Palestinians. And later, turning humans into cyborgs, this scientist can't wait. What's possible if we push things a little bit further? That's what I'm about. This is what I live for. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting patient-serving groups such as the International Diabetes Federation, who help empower individuals with diabetes to live life to the fullest. Learn more about the International Diabetes Federation and others who are taking on this disease at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. There are fresh concerns about escalating violence between Israelis and Palestinians. And if you look at the news from the ground, you'll see why. Today, Israel launched airstrikes on several targets in the Gaza Strip. Among the dead was the top military commander for Hamas, the militant group that controls Gaza. Israeli officials say the move was part of a broader assault on Palestinian militants, perhaps even a ground invasion of Gaza. Israel says the strikes are aimed at stopping rocket attacks from the Palestinian territory, but those attacks continued even after the airstrikes. The world's Matthew Bell reports from Jerusalem. Outside of a Gaza City hospital this afternoon, men reacted to the news from inside. Ahmed al-Jabari, the top commander of the Qassam Brigades, the military wing of Hamas, and one of the highest-ranking Palestinian leaders in the Gaza Strip, was dead. He was blown apart in a moving car hit by an Israeli missile. Israel has killed senior Hamas figures before, but this was the first from the group's top leadership since the war in Gaza four years ago. Hamas official Khalil al-Haya declared Jabari a martyr and his death a cowardly assassination. Referring to Israel, he said the Zionist enemy doesn't understand restraint. It has long spilled our people's blood. The battle has begun, he said, and it will end, God willing, with the liberation of Jerusalem. Another Hamas official said Israel had opened the gates of hell with this killing. But from Israel's perspective, those gates had been opened for some time. Hundreds of rockets fired from the Gaza Strip have landed in southern Israel during 2012. Army spokesman Avital Leibovich said the Israeli military initiated what it's calling Operation Pillar of Defense, to put a stop to the rockets. The goal of the operation is to defend Israeli people and also target and cripple those terror organizations responsible for the ongoing rocket fire, namely Hamas, Islamic Jihad, and others. The first target was Ahmad Jabari. Ahmad Jabari uh, has a lot of Israeli blunt on his hands. Israel's Shin Bet Security Service said Jabari was responsible for all terrorist activities against Israel from Gaza in the past decade. It said the Hamas commander was also involved in financing and directing military operations and that his elimination today was a message to Hamas officials in Gaza 
that if they continue promoting terrorism against Israel, they will be hurt. Israel's president, Shimon Peres, reportedly spoke with President Obama and said Israel is not interested in fanning the flames. Officials from the American-supported Palestinian Authority in the West Bank quickly condemned Israel's actions in Gaza. A spokesman accused Israel of initiating a bloody escalation. The Egyptian foreign minister, Mohammed Kamal Amr, also condemned the attacks. Amr said Egypt strongly and clearly condemns what Israel is doing in Gaza with the airstrikes, from the killing of civilians to the assassinations. This is unacceptable, he said, and we deeply condemn it. Former Israeli intelligence officer Yossi Alfer says the assassination of the Hamas leader and the destruction of missile sites appears to be an Israeli military victory. But Alfer says this is no substitute for a long-term solution. What we see today is ingenious. It's so far successful, but it still fits into the overall pattern of tit-for-tat that has its ups and has its downs, does not free one million Israelis in the Gaza periphery from the constant threat of rockets from Gaza and does not constitute any kind of serious strategic approach. This evening in Gaza, there were reports of more Israeli missile strikes and more casualties. Across the border in southern Israel, sirens went off, warning residents of more incoming rockets. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in Jerusalem. President Obama held his first post-election news conference today. When pressed on the unfolding scandal involving former CIA director David Petraeus, the president said that so far he hasn't been presented any evidence to suggest that classified information was disclosed. And Mr. Obama went out of his way to praise the retired general's service. General Petraeus had an extraordinary career. Uh, He served this country with great distinction in Iraq, in Afghanistan and as head of the CIA. But the scandals involving both Petraeus and top commander in Afghanistan, General John Allen, is forcing a hard look at leadership within the U.S. military. Concerns about the quality of our military leadership have actually been brewing for some time. Martin L. Cook, for one, has been looking at this issue for years. Cook is a professor of professional military ethics at the Naval War College in Rhode Island. And uh, Dr. Cook, let's be clear, you're you're speaking now as an individual, and uh, these are your own opinions. And interesting to note that you've not served, so you're you're a civilian looking inside the world of uh, the U.S. military. What impact does a scandal like this uh, at the top of the military hierarchy have up and down the chain of command? Well, I think, uh, you know, General Petraeus obviously is a, one of the most highly admired officers in recent American history. So it's, an, it's a body blow to the profession. Unfortunately, we've seen quite a rash of failures below his rank, but in fair, relatively senior ranks. Uh, the Navy in particular, where I work now, has been very concerned about the number of uh, detachments for cause, which is the term of art for firing people. Mm. In fact, the Navy Inspector General did a fairly extensive study of people who had failed at various levels, and almost all of it, 70%, was for personal misconduct issues involving sex, alcohol, and money. And wh- why are personal misconduct issues so crucial to avoid in the military? 
Well, I think uh, the trust and confidence of people in the chain of command uh, in their senior leadership is re- is really vital. And when they're seen as behaving in ways that look kind of iffy or shady, um, that, that always is injurious. I think in General Petraeus' case, it's now coming out that a lot of his advisors were really quite alarmed at uh, why was this woman in theater for such ex- extended periods of time and why was he spending so much time with her? And that just doesn't pass the smell test that, that a woman who's never written a book in her life should be given that kind of access for the purposes of writing biography. And yet everybody's taking the smell test now. Why did it take, uh, you know, a, a scandal for this to come out? Well, you know, a four-star general is uh, can be questioned in private, and I assume probably some of his aides raised the issue, but uh, there are very few people to tell him to stop what he's doing. That's one of the problems, the sense of entitlement that inevitably takes over, especially, especially when you're as lionized as he was. There's actually a name for what's going on with this episode. People call it the Bathsheba effect, a reference to the wife of David in the Old Testament. Tell us more about that idea. Well, uh, it came from an article that was published in the Harvard Business Review 20 or more years ago, and actually it's made its way around the Navy quite a lot. And the argument these guys make is uh, they're really studying failure of senior business leaders, but they pointed out that what's interesting is these are not people who are afraid of failure. These are people who've been successful so long that they've come almost to take it for granted, and Hmm. they get sloppy, they get lazy, they are so used to being lionized that they get the sense that if they were to mess up, they have enough power to cover it up. So what is the military doing to try and correct uh, these issues, if anything. I mean, that, that was a report uh, about business leaders. What, what about military leaders? Well, um, in the Army, there's a, a place uh, at West Point called the Center for the Army Profession and Ethic. That was signed off on in the Army by General Dempsey when he was chief of staff of the Army. And now that he's the chairman, he's been pushing for this rather hard. But even before he came in, Admiral Mullen convened a meeting in D.C. his last January in office that I attended. And the sole purpose of the meeting was to discuss the health of the profession. And he said, I'm, what worries me most is the maintaining the trust and confidence of the American people. And as he said, they, that is the American people, don't know us and we don't know them. And that gap is getting more dangerous. And every episode like this, you know, and there have been a whole series of them in the recent months that have hit the newsstand tend to erode the trust and confidence of the American people in its military. Martin Cook is the Stockdale Chair of Professional Military Ethics at the Naval War College in Rhode Island, where he is a professor. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Power, the saying goes, is the ultimate aphrodisiac, and there's a lot of power concentrated in the hands of U.S. military leaders that seem to play a role in the consensual relationship at the heart of the Petraeus scandal, but it may also be a factor in the troubling incidents of sexual harassment and rape among our nation's armed forces. Helen Benedict has spent a career looking at sexual assault and abuse in the military. She's a professor at Columbia University School of Journalism and the author of The Lonely Soldier, The Private War of Women Serving in Iraq. Benedict says relationships in the U.S. military are especially prone to abuse because of the huge power differentials in the chain of command. When one of the couple is superior to the other in the military, that superior person will have a lot of power over the the fate of the subordinate, over that person's career and over that person's safety. So if you've got one powerful person, you you know, the man usually, who's more powerful and more and higher up the chain than the person he's having an affair with a sexual relationship with, there are questions about how consensual is that relationship and how much choice does the subordinate person really have? Are they afraid of losing their career or getting punished if they say no? And how many relationships look consensual and in fact aren't because of that dynamic? Hmm. 
Adultery is strictly forbidden in the military, and it's clear that if you abuse uh, that link in the chain of command, you will be held accountable. So what's going wrong? Well, adultery is up to to the discretion of the people who investigate it, whether to call it criminal or not, in fact. That means that adultery per se can be ignored or it can be used to punish in different ways. I actually think that the military should get rid of adultery as any kind of um, crime. Because it is Because, for example, a lot of charges of sexual assault are turned into charges of adultery. I've seen many cases where a man has raped a woman in the military. The man is married, the woman is not. She gets charged with adultery and punished for it. He gets off. It can be manipulated into a way of silencing people, of getting people off, or of drumming people out for other reasons that aren't fair. Uh, it just seems archaic and too open to abuse, and we shouldn't even have it anymore. Yeah, I'm just wondering, as you've looked at uh, sexual assaults in the military, was there ever a moment where you saw a case of adultery that really kind of threw into question all your assumptions about the lines between the people who get prosecuted and don't? I've seen many cases where the injustice against the victim has been so breathtakingly awful. I came across many cases in which the assailant was not only let off but promoted when the woman was punished. At the moment, the rule is that any any rape that's reported within the military has to be, whether you report it with your name or not as the survivor, has to be reported up the chain of command. In 33% of the cases, when you report a rape, it has to be reported to a man who's a friend of the, of the rapist. And in 25% of the cases, it has to be reported to the man who is the rapist. Where, where do um, those statistics come from? The uh, annual reports on sexual assault in the military from the Defense Department. One of the things that advocates have been trying to do is to move cases of sexual assault out of the criminal justice system into altogether into the civilian one so that to avoid that conflict of interest and that protectionism where everybody gets hushed up. So there is a culture in the military of keeping quiet about abuses of the system to protect their own. Helen Benedict, a professor at Columbia University School of Journalism. Her most recent book is Sand Queen, a novel about the Iraq War. Thank you very much. Thank you. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, supporting patient-serving groups such as the International Diabetes Federation, who help empower individuals with diabetes to live life to the fullest. Learn more about the International Diabetes Federation and others who are taking on this disease at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Consider the human eye and ear and nose. Our bodies come equipped with some pretty sophisticated parts that enable us to navigate the world with our five senses. But why stop at five? Maybe technology could give us a sixth sense. Well, a British scientist is experimenting with ways to do that, and so are members of the public. Reporter Ari Daniel Shapiro has the final installment in our weekly series produced with the PBS program Nova Science Now. Kevin Warwick is a professor of cybernetics at the University of Reading in England. Ask him to look ahead 100 years and predict where we're headed as a species, and he doesn't hesitate. The only future I can see is one where there are perhaps humans as we know them today, 
but we also have the cyborg entity, the part human, part machine, with all different varieties. Warwick has spent his career working on ways to merge humans with machines, and he sees no reason why we should accept the limitations of our bodies as evolution has shaped them. Let's move forward. You know, let's not stay as we are. Warwick feels particularly trapped by our five senses because there are so many signals out there, like radio waves and x-rays, that as humans we just can't detect. We're looking at the world through a tunnel. We're hardly seeing anything that's there. So I think we can use technology to give the brain a much, much better perspective of what's going on. And it's this philosophy that's propelled Warwick into the realm of sensory enhancement, that is, adding new senses to the human experience. And Warwick isn't alone in this desire. It turns out there are people who've already taken this step. I got the implant about two months ago. A small cut was made in the side of my fingertip. It took about 10 minutes, tops. That's Rebecca Davy, an undergrad at the University of Manchester. She's part of a small community of people who've had tiny magnets inserted into their bodies. Tucked into the tip of Davy's left ring finger is a magnet the size of a sesame seed. She had it implanted by a body modification artist in Berlin for about $200. Davy says most people just don't get it. Often people are quite shocked by the idea of having, of almost butchering your body to put things in, but it's, it's not really like that. If people are willing to get things like piercings or even contact lenses, it doesn't seem to me such a huge step to then go on to things like magnetic implants. Now, the magnet hasn't profoundly changed Davy's life, but she can detect things in her environment that she couldn't before. When she approaches a magnetic field, she can feel the magnet move beneath her skin. She says it's like a gentle tugging or quivering. To demonstrate, Davy powers up her microwave and probes the air with her finger. She traces the shape of the microwave's magnetic field. It's very strong as you go to the side of the microwave and then sort of dies off as you go over the middle, and then very strong at the other side. Back in Reading, in the lab of cybernetics researcher Kevin Warwick, a graduate student is studying people who've gotten these magnetic implants. In fact, the student is one of them. He has tiny magnets in two fingers on his left hand. His name is Ian Harrison, and he wants to know how such implants affect the way people experience their world. I ultimately want to prove this is a viable method of input to the body. Viable in the sense of being useful. For instance, Harrison's looking into using magnetic implants as a new way of experiencing music. He's queued up one of his favorite songs on his computer. The audio output cable is split. It goes both to the speaker and to a small coil of copper wire sitting on his desk. Harrison sticks one of his magnetic fingers into the center of the coil. So what are you feeling in your finger? Right now, just the the rhythm of the beats. Every single time you hear that bass come through, you can feel the sensation quite strong coming through. He can feel the music even when the speaker's turned off. Harrison's professor, Kevin Warwick, wants to do more than just put magnets inside fingers so people can experience music in a different way. He's especially excited about neuronal implants, small computer chips that interact directly with our nervous systems, like the one he had connected to the nerves of his left wrist a few years back. So you can see the scar there from where the operation was carried out. 
Once there's a direct connection to the nerves, it's possible to hook them up to all sorts of contraptions. Warwick grabs a baseball cap dolled up with a circuit board, 9-volt battery, a snake of black and red wires, and several ultrasonic sensors. This hat allowed him to navigate his environment like a bat with a form of echolocation. So the closer an object measured by the ultrasonic sensor, the more pulses went into my nervous system. I mean, it didn't feel like heat or touch. We had, if you like, opened up a new route to the brain. Warwick says he was able to move around his lab, blindfolded, without bumping into anything. The implant was inside Warwick's body for only a few months, but he sees no reason why these devices couldn't become permanent parts of ourselves. They could be used for therapeutic purposes, certainly. Helping somebody who's blind for example. So they can detect objects as they move around ultrasonically. Why not? But Warwick doesn't want to stop there. He sees no reason why people who have all their natural senses shouldn't have access to extrasensory devices, too. It's using the technology to provide something extra, so it is enhancing, it's upgrading. Well, it's just not clear to me why I would want to put these sensors into my body and whether it would undermine some of my other capabilities. Wendell Wallach is a bioethicist at Yale University, and he studies the legal and ethical challenges posed by advances in robotics and neuroscience. He says we humans are not good at multitasking with our technology, like talking on the phone while driving. And he's concerned that if we are able to gain additional senses, they might distract us from our other natural senses. I think one of the the difficulties with all of these new trajectories in terms of how science can alter us is that it tends to aggrandize what these technologies bring into our life at the same time as it demeans a little bit how remarkable we are as human beings. But that's not the way Kevin Warwick sees it. He wants to be more remarkable. For him, the sensory enhancement technologies of the future, the ones that he thinks may help facilitate our transition to cyborgs, are as much a personal quest as a professional one. I want to experience things for myself. I want to know what it's like. And I want to find out what's possible if we push things a little bit further. That's, that's what I'm about. This is what I live for. Warwick says he senses the future, and he refuses to be left behind. For Nova and the World, I'm Ari Daniel Shapiro, Reading. You can see Kevin Warwick's echolocation hat and some of those magnetic fingers at theworld.org. And tonight on PBS, find out what other new technologies may soon change your life. Thought-controlled video games, robotic exoskeletons, yep, all that and more. Watch tonight's season finale of Nova Science Now when host David Pogue asks, what will the future be like? This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, the Sikh community mounts a relief effort for victims of Sandy in hard-hit parts of New York City. People were very desperate there, and they were so happy to see us. So anytime, now when we go to Far Rockaway or go to the shelters, they see a turban, they know if help is here, food is here. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting patient-serving groups such as the International Diabetes Federation, who help empower individuals with diabetes to live life to the fullest. 
Learn more about the International Diabetes Federation and others who are taking on this disease at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. While Washington is in the grips of high-level negotiations to avoid the so-called fiscal cliff, in Europe, you could argue some countries that have already fallen off a fiscal cliff are now trying to climb back up. Across Europe today, tens of thousands of people took to the streets to protest government spending cuts and rising unemployment. It was a coordinated day of strikes and demonstrations throughout the European Union. The biggest protests took place in some of the nations hardest hit by the crisis, like Italy, Greece, and Spain. The world's Jerry Haddon is in the Spanish city of Barcelona. Just how widespread are these strikes, Jerry? Give us a sense. Just about everywhere in Europe, there have been at least protests of support. The strongest action has happened in southern Europe, where we've seen four general strikes, Greece, Italy, Portugal, and Spain. But again, there's been solidarity movements and and street marches all across uh, Europe. Right. And how vigorous are these protests? Are they peaceful or violent? There have been clashes in Milan. There were some clashes early this morning in Madrid when the wholesale food market opened up and the picketers blocked the entrances there. Uh, there have been about a, five dozen people arrested so far in, in Madrid during the, where the main protest is going on. But I wouldn't characterize this as uh, particularly violent. So what do these protesters, these strikers, want their leaders to hear, both their leaders in their home countries and the leaders, the European Union leaders? Their message is very simple. Austerity doesn't work. They all argue that the patient is being killed off by the medicine. You know, Greece, Spain, especially Portugal, they've all bought into the austerity plan, you know, that's been, they would say, foisted on them by the International Monetary Fund, the European Union, and the European Central Bank. And none of those three countries, for example, can point to any turnaround in their sinking economies. All their economies are still contracting. Unemployment is rising across the board. What they're saying is, and what you know, their union leaders are, uh, are trying to say to Brussels is, this isn't working. What we need to get our books back in order is growth. And cutting spending is killing jobs. It's causing hardship for families. It means cutbacks in healthcare and education. It means pensions being slashed. It means retirement ages being raised. Some of these reforms, unions would agree, are necessary. But given all together at the same time and with such harshness, they say it's just it's just destroying economies instead of helping them to turn around. So for these strikers, uh, will these protests be anything more than kind of a ritual? Or is there a chance that Brussels might actually listen to them and say, no, they've got a point there. These uh, austerity plans aren't really working. I think the message has been heard by Brussels. I mean, if you take the case of Greece, they've held 20 strikes, some of them general strikes in the last three years, 20. And you'd be hard pressed to argue that Greek workers are better off today than they were three years ago. I mean, their economy is destroyed and getting worse every single day. But that said, politicians pay close attention to these kinds of protests. And you could also argue, well, the Greeks looks like it looks like Greece is just about to win a two year reprieve on getting its debt under control. Portugal just got a two year reprieve as well. So there may you could point to some small victories. I would say that the strikes do a little bit for the workers cause, but not nearly as much as unions would like to see. What about just, you know, for people who aren't striking, trying to go about their daily lives, how much uh, have all these strikes and all the people turning out in the streets disrupted uh, life in, say, a city like Barcelona? 
Yeah, well, the point of these strikes is to make life inconvenient. I mean, that's how you draw attention to what you're doing. If everyone were just sort of standing calmly on the sidewalk waving banners, no one would pay any attention. Right. I was down at rush hour at the main subway and, and metro hub in Barcelona. Literally, all the hallways were gated shut. And it seemed that most residents of Barcelona knew that this was happening. It was almost like a ghost town down there. But every once in a while, a tourist with suitcases would come rolling in and, and, and sort of spin around in circles, confused. And inevitably, they would come up to me, the guy standing there with a microphone, and ask, you know, what's going on? And I'd explain to them as I could, mm. well, there's a strike today, and there are no trains until 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And they'd roll their eyes and, and head off trying to... <laughs> trying to figure out what they were going to do next. Right. The buses on the street, you know, they there was minimum service, but that was interrupted because the picketers would stop any bus they could and just sticker the windshields so that the drivers literally couldn't drive anymore. So so life was complicated for commuters, but people knew for a long time the strike was coming, so I think they were prepared. Now, one thing that struck me, the the coordination of all these strikes in all these different countries, is there anything to, to note there? I mean, it feels like every time I saw a strike in Greece, it was just a strike in Greece, and the next day there'd be one in Madrid. But today, altogether now. There's a confederation of European unions, and that's existed for a long time. And I think what's happened is they finally got together and said, you know, we shouldn't just be striking individually. This is a European Union problem. We're all members of this union, and we're all, you know, fighting the same battle. So let's pick a date and let's get together and let's send a much stronger message to Brussels that everybody is suffering. It's not just one community or the other. And I think probably today, strikers felt a lot more emboldened knowing that they were standing with fellow workers across the continent. The world's Jerry Haddon, as always. Thanks for the update. My pleasure, Marco. Memorizing world capitals can be a bit tricky because sometimes they move. Great fodder for our geo-quiz, though. For example, the capital of Nigeria was moved from Lagos to Abuja, in part because of overcrowding. And remember Almaty? It was the capital of Kazakhstan until it was replaced by Astana. And Myanmar's capital, not Rangoon, but Nepadaw. So for today's quiz, we have two questions for you. Can you name the capital of Zimbabwe? And if you're really on top of your game, can you name the place where the Zimbabwean government wants to build a new capital? The plan is very controversial, as we'll hear when we come back with the answers. John McAfee is still on the lam. If the name sounds familiar, it is. You may actually see it several times each day. John McAfee is the founder of the antivirus software company McAfee, and he reportedly is hiding in the jungles of the Central American nation of Belize. McAfee is wanted for questioning in connection with the apparent murder of his neighbor on Sunday. From his hideout, the British-born millionaire fugitive today contacted Josh Davis, a journalist with Wired, to again protest his innocence. McAfee claims he's a victim of a government conspiracy. Josh Davis is on the line now from San Francisco, from the offices of Wired. Josh, it's a crazy story, and you've kind of found yourself right in the middle of it, now serving as a conduit for information that McAfee wants uh, to share with the world. What the heck is going on? You know, I really don't know. Uh, this is bizarre, but it, it started in a bizarre place, and it's only gotten more bizarre. Uh, six months ago, April 30th, McAfee was raided by the gang suppression unit of the Belizean police, who charged him with running a methamphetamine lab and possessing illegal firearms. 
they took him to jail. They held him overnight. They released him the next day. The charges were eventually dropped. Uh, McAfee says that the government is harassing him because he's pointing out corrupt elements in the Belizean government. And is uh, that is that in fact true? Is he pointing out those corrupt elements? Well, he's certainly saying the government of Belize is corrupt. Uh, whether or not it is uh, or not it, it is unclear. Certainly in my conversations with the Belizean government, they say absolutely not. We are a democratic society. Uh, we are a society governed by laws. Uh, McAfee is inventing all of these accusations and, and flying off the handle. So he has this villa on this uh, little posh island. Is he accused of actually killing his neighbor? Is he suspected of it or is he still just a person of interest? Uh, currently, the police are saying that he's just wanted for questioning. He's a person of interest. So what possible uh, motive could he have for killing his neighbor? Well, he, he called me uh, on Saturday morning, uh, the day of, of the murder, to say that uh, a number of his dogs, four of his dogs, had been poisoned the previous night. McAfee's now, dogs or the neighbor's dogs? No, the McAfee's dogs. Okay. That McAfee's dogs had been po- poisoned uh, the previous night. And McAfee, uh, I know, I know from my time there that the neighbors were none too happy with his dogs. He had eleven of them. They barked at passersbys in a very aggressive fashion. And, and these are not poodles; these are like guard dogs. These are guard dogs, exactly. Uh, and not to mention the fact that McAfee has a number of armed guards who patrol the beach with shotguns because he thinks that the government is going to uh, raid him again at any moment. Uh, I know that one of his neighbors to the south, a gentleman named Gregory Fall, uh, had complained to the local town council, in fact, just earlier that week, about the dogs. And then that night, Saturday night, uh, Gregory Fall uh, was shot in the back of the head and found the next morning in a pool of his own blood. Now, you've been working on a major story on McAfee for some time now. You visited with him in Belize earlier this year. You know him pretty well, Josh. Could he have committed murder? He is a very eccentric person. There is no question. Uh, He's a very complex person. Uh, In fact, in one instance uh, in August, uh, I had heard a rumor that he he had, in fact, killed somebody. And I asked him about that. And he says that he actively encouraged the rumors about him. And I said, why would you do that? And he said, because I wanted people to be scared of me. He said, remember, I'm, t- you know, I'm living here uh, in a place where I feel very threatened, where I think people are trying to harm me, uh, and I want them to be afraid of me. And if they think that I'm capable of some brutality, then all the better. So clearly, he, he's living a life that, that most people would, would never choose or never even dream of. Mm. Uh, and yet, I, I, I asked him point blank, why don't you leave? If you think people are trying to kill you, why don't you leave? And he says, I love it here. What do you mean? Hmm. That's why I say he's complex. It's very hard to figure him out. And Josh, how did you become kind of uh, his confidant? Well, I spent over the past six months, I've spent more than 100 hours interviewing him, uh, both in person in Belize and on the phone. Uh, I think that he uh, steadily came to believe that I would report his story accurately. Uh, and, uh, you know, and I'm attempting to do that. Uh, He calls me. He tells me what he thinks is happening. Uh, I report that. At the same time, I I am also reporting the other side of the story. 
uh, he gets angry at me sometimes and says he's not happy with the, the way I'm covering it. Josh Davis of Wired. It is a weird story, a sad story. Thank you very much for uh, telling us about it. Uh, John McAfee, who is somewhere, presumably down in the jungles of Belize right now. Appreciate your time, Josh. My pleasure. Back now to our geo-quiz. We're in search of Zimbabwe's new capital. Peter Thornycroft reports for the Daily Telegraph. First, a bit of geography. Harare is the current capital of Zimbabwe. Where does the government of Robert Mugabe envision a new capital for the country? We hear that it would be in Mount Hamden, which is actually the western edge of Harare. I suspect what is being discussed is site for a new parliament and various government buildings there rather than a whole new city. Right. So Mount Hampton, uh, I guess we can call it a a big suburb of uh, Harare, the current capital of Zimbabwe. So uh, what does Mount Hampton offer city planners that Harare currently does not? It offers them space. The parliament is already quite a a crowded building. It was built in the colonial era. And there really is not a centimeter of spare space in that parliament. So it is a question of space. And it's certainly an easy place to get to. And it's out of the, you know, the mishmash of chaotic parking or increasingly chaotic parking and ever more traffic on the roads in Harare. Right. So it sounds like political decisions and new constitution is kind of fueling this move. What is behind this, though? I mean, last I heard Zimbabwe was suffering economically like nowhere else on earth. How would such a venture be funded? It cannot be funded. There is no money to fill in potholes. So the whole maintenance of the city has fallen behind and there simply is no money to fund it. Tomorrow is budget day and we're going to hear some very bad news from the budget tomorrow that uh, revenues have fallen behind, that reconstruction of infrastructure destroyed during the hyperinflationary period of 2009 cannot be completed. There's no money for schools and of course, the health sector is, is, has largely been supported by donors during the inclusive government. So this uh, move of the city is, is really a pipe dream unless there's some other funds about which we know nothing. I've also heard that as far as funding, some people are saying the Chinese are behind this. What have you heard there? I hear that the Chinese are behind everything, everything that you can possibly imagine. Uh, three years ago, I heard Zimbabwe would have enough electrical power for the country um, within five years because the Chinese were going to fund it. Well, I don't know where those Chinese are and why they haven't funded it. And certainly the Chinese have made extraordinary contribution, And uh, but it's not for free. They've built a new defense college. They're mm. building a new hotel. None of these are for free. None of these are gifts. These are business decisions. The Chinese are doing business. Whether they're going to fund it, uh, I, I don't know. A lot of Robert Mugabe's critics have said this new capital is a ridiculous idea. Is it? At this point in Zimbabwe's history where it can barely pay its civil servants, it can't fund its schools, and it can't pay for adequate health care, yes, it is a crazy idea. There are many more important things than building a new parliament. They can make do with the building they've got. So, yes, it's absurd. Peter Thornycroft reports for The Daily Telegraph. Thank you very much. You're welcome. So don't change your maps just yet. Mount Hampton may be half of the answer to today's geo-quiz, but the other half, Harare, remains the capital of Zimbabwe. That page of the atlas hasn't flipped. 
I'll tell you what is flipping, though, the very cool Flipboard app, which you can use to flip through the world's stories. Download the app on your iPad, iPhone, or Android device. Just head to flipboard.com slash the world. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. In the aftermath of Hurricane Sandy, volunteers from all over stepped up to help those left struggling by the storm. Among those volunteers, members of Indian Sikh communities from around New York. The Sikhs descended on hearted areas with steaming lentils, rice, and vegetables. Even now, they're still out feeding those in need. Rama Reddy Raghavan of Feet in Two Worlds reports from Queens. After Sandy hit, part of York College in Queens was turned into a shelter to house some 200 people left homeless by the storm. On a recent evening, a group of Sikh men and women arrived at the shelter carrying trays of hot food. The men wore orange turbans, the women had scarves. They quickly served the food to people lined up for a meal. Jagjit Singh is one of the volunteers. You know, there's plenty of food, even at people's houses, but they can't cook. So when we bring hot food, people get all excited and they're so happy to have the hot meals. The group United Sikhs has been coordinating storm relief activities with various city agencies to identify areas of greatest need, and they've been cooking and distributing up to 1,500 meals a day. Singh says the Sikhs were among the first groups to bring hot meals into hard-hit Far Rockaway in Queens. People were very desperate there, and they were so happy to see us. So, you know, I like to, I'm very happy about that. We were the first ones, you know, to be there. So anytime now when we go to Far Rockaway or go to the shelters, they see a turban, they know if help is here, food is here. So that brings big smiles to their faces. Sikhs haven't always gotten that reaction in the U.S. After 9-11, Sikhs were singled out. Some mistakenly thought they were Muslims and associated them with the terrorist attacks. Then this past summer, a gunman killed seven Sikhs at a temple in Wisconsin. The St. Francis de Sales Church in Rockaway has been turned into a distribution center for water, clothing, and canned food. Anthony DiCarlo is a police detective who's been volunteering here. His home was also damaged in the storm, and he has nothing but praise for the Sikhs. Considering their turmoil that was just in their community and how persecuted they are as a community and a religion, to pull together, it's not about color, it's not about religion, it's all about helping humanity, and it's a good thing. For Sikhs, the serving of langar, free vegetarian food cooked and blessed in the temple, is an important tenet of their religion. Recovery efforts in some areas are taking a long time, so it looks like the Sikhs and their steaming trays of food may be needed for some time to come. For the world, I'm Rama Reddy Raghavan, Rockaway, Queens. That story was produced in cooperation with Feed in Two Worlds, a project that brings the work of immigrant journalists to public radio. These past few weeks have been difficult ones for the people who run the BBC, which, of course, is one of the co-producers of this program. The BBC has been rocked by scandals over the way it reported two big stories about sexual abuse investigations. But we're not going there right now. No, we're just going to note a birthday. Some may not feel like celebrating right now, but today the BBC turns 90. 
And awkward or not, the BBC is marking the 90th anniversary of its first radio broadcast back on November 14, 1922. The world's Patrick Cox tells us how. Today, at exactly 5.33pm London time, the BBC's normal programming on its many UK stations and in some parts of the world was disrupted for three minutes by this. Strange time to hear Big Ben. You'd normally hear it at the top of the hour. Then things got stranger. This is Tuero, the London station of the British Broadcasting Company calling. Tuero calling. Two L O calling. Two L O was the name of the BBC transmitter of 90 years ago, and this was the best-selling tune back then. But what about those birds? And this voice. Hello, future. I hope music still matters because music is everything. Without it, there's nothing, just silence. The BBC commissioned musician Damon Albarn to put together this audio collage. Albarn's resume is itself a bit of a collage. He's the front man of the bands Blur and Gorillaz. He's recorded songs with African musicians and he's written an opera. The BBC asked him to create something that would convey a sense of not just the past 90 years, but the next 90 years too, through its various radio outlets, talk stations, music stations, foreign language stations. The BBC solicited responses to a single question. What message would you give to somebody listening in 90 years' time? Everything is connected. Keep talking to one another. Keep listening to one another. These are the ways to keep living with one another. Alban says he was overwhelmed by the responses. It varied from the very old and wise who tended not to sort of imagine the future but were more interested in, in providing a piece of sort of solid hard-earned wisdom. And then there was the more middle-aged family age group, which was sort of quite downbeat, really. There was this anxiety. And then there were a few younger minds musing on this. And they, in a way, were the most interesting because they were very free in their... and very, in, in a way, the clearest. And in a sense, the only people who will actually have any connection with 90 years. I think there'll be more people, and because there will be more people, I would tell them to be careful not to get lost, because it might be, like, really, really busy. Not all the messages are delivered with the human voice. Philosopher Bertrand Russell's famous quote, love is wise, hatred is foolish, is rendered in Morse code. So, so there's Bertrand Russell in, in Morse code, there's a Skylark, and there's a, a scary Cold War spy station. And at the end of the three minutes, there's the BBC's Pips, which, like Big Ben, usually mark the top of the hour. And then Alban plays the piano. For The World, I'm Patrick Cox. That's how the BBC fets itself on its birthday. You can hear all 2LO calling in its entirety in our podcast, The World in Words. Listen or download at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. Thanks for being with us.
The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH, supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives. GatesFoundation.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. By the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org. And the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. macfound.org. PRI Public Radio International.